Over the past couple of weeks, we've been discussing what I like to call the what and the how of Prairie Review. The what and the how. And the reason I say that is that two weeks ago, we discussed what type of church Prairie View is called to be. And we talked about how I may have my opinions about what type of church Prairie View should be, and you may have your opinions about what type of church Prairie View should be, and the elders have their opinions about what type of church Prairie View should be. But ultimately, what really matters is what God's opinion is, what kind of church God wants Prairie View to be. And so we looked at God's Word because it's the best tool that we have to discover what God wants our church to be. And so we looked at Acts chapter 2, and we saw all these traits that the early church practiced. We saw that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to communion, to remembering what Christ did for them. They were devoted to prayer. They treated each other as a family. They did all these things that helped them become the church that God was calling them to be. And we asked the question, what type of church are we going to be? Are we going to be a church that strives towards those ideals, or are we going to be a church that just goes on our own opinions of what we should be? And the challenge was, no, we need to be a church that strives to be like that Acts 2 church. And that's the what, what type of church we're going to be. And if you remember that week, I asked three questions that I wanted your feedback on. And those three questions were, number one, how did you get to Prairie View? Number two, what do you love about Prairie View? And number three, what are your dreams for Prairie View's future? And over the past couple of weeks, I've been able to get some feedback on that. I've gotten a couple of Facebook messages. I've gotten some emails. I've been out to dinner with a couple of people. Uh, I visited a small group this past week. And so I've been getting some feedback on that. But there's still some more feedback that I would like to get. So if you haven't talked to me about that, please don't hesitate to talk to me. Send me an email. Give me a call. Do something. I really want to hear from you. It's going to help me immensely as I try to figure out who you are individually and who we are as a church. So if you can do that, I'd really appreciate it. And then last week, we talked about the how. The how. And we saw that in Acts 2, the church practiced all these traits, but they didn't just stop there. They didn't just practice these traits, get stuff in order in-house, and then wait for people to show up. They went out and they brought the gospel into their community. They were on the offensive. They were aggressive. The apostles go out and they are preaching about Christ to people who had never heard of him before. They're going out there and they're being proactive. And we talked about how we as a church are called to be doing the same thing. Not just getting stuff in order in our four walls and then waiting for people to walk through the door. We're called to be taking the gospel out in our, into our community. And one of the questions we asked was if our church were to close its doors tomorrow, would anyone notice? And I've gotten some feedback on that too. Some people, would, some people have said, yeah, in some ways they would. But some people have said, you know, honestly, in some ways maybe they wouldn't. And that's a problem. We're called to be taking the gospel out into our community. And the way we do that, as we looked at last week, is through loving our neighbor. One by one. Individually, little by little, patiently loving the people that God places in front of us. It's not about publicity campaigns. It's not about marketing campaigns. It's not about building a huge building and then expecting people to just show up. It's about each one of us taking it upon ourselves to love our neighbors. And the phrase that we used, just kind of an easy phrase to remember, was love and serve until people ask why. Love and serve until people ask why. So we talked about the what, we talked about the how. I want to get to that why. Love and serve until people ask why. Why? So let's say that you took that to heart. 
And last week, you went home and you decided, you know what, I'm going to find the people that live next to me. I'm going to find someone that shops at the same grocery store as me. I'm going to find someone who goes to the same gym as I do, a coworker, a classmate, whatever. And you decide, you know what, I'm going to love and serve that person. I'm going to love and serve that person no matter what. And so you meet this person and you find some common ground, you find some common interests, and then you start loving and serving them. Maybe when they're sick, you bring them a meal. Maybe when they lock their keys in their car, you give them a ride. There's all this stuff that you're doing, and it could take weeks and months and years, and you're serving and you're serving and you're loving and you're loving, and the why never comes. The person never wants to ask why. And you think it's never going to happen. But then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, something does happen. It could be a tragedy. It could be something completely unexpected. It could be just an act of service that you show. And finally, that person, after all that hard work you put into it, that person finally asks, why? Why are you doing this? Why have you been such a good friend to me? Why have you been loving me and serving me for all these years when all my friends abandoned me, when everybody else gave up on me? Why is it that you're still here? What's different about you? What do you say? When they ask why, what do you say? Because ultimately, we have one thing to do ministry with. And I've often thought, what if the church burned down? Okay? What if the church burned down and we lost everything? We lost chairs, we lost guitars, microphones, offices, curriculum, communion tables. I mean, anything and everything you can think of in this building. We lost it all. What would we have left to do ministry with? What would ministry look like? And the answer is, the one thing we would have left is we would have a story. We would have a story to tell. And it's a story worth telling. And that's what we're going to be looking at here at Prairie View for the next few weeks at least. This week we're going to talk about part one of this story worth telling. And the next week we're going to talk about part two. And I'll be honest with you, part one and part two, this week and next week, it's about the end of Jesus' life on earth. It's about the last week of Jesus' life on earth. And then in April, we're going to start looking at Jesus' life through the Gospel of Mark from the beginning. And so you may be thinking, like, wait a minute, why are we looking at Jesus' death and then going to be looking at Jesus' life after we look at his death? Like, that doesn't make any sense. But I would say to you, sometimes, if you're anything like me, when I walk into a room and I see the end of a movie on TV, if the ending is really good, it makes me want to see the beginning. It makes me want to see what happened that led things up to that point. And so I hope this is going to do the same thing for you. And today is known as Palm Sunday. It's Palm Sunday. And if you're any way familiar with the Christian calendar, this is a big week. This is what a lot of people call Holy Week. And it starts with Palm Sunday. And then on Thursday, you have Holy Thursday or Maundy Thursday, some people call it. And then you have Good Friday. And then Saturday is kind of boring. And then you have Easter. And all of these days have some huge significance, and we're going to be looking at two of them today, two of the four. So if you have a Bible with you, open up to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, we're going to be spending a lot of time in Matthew. And I do want to warn you, I would really encourage you to have a Bible to follow along with, because we're going to be jumping like all over the place in the book of Matthew today, okay? So if you have a Bible with you, I would really encourage you to use it. Share with a neighbor. Uh, there should be Bibles underneath the chairs somewhere around you if you need one. Uh, really encourage you to follow along. If you can't follow along, if there is absolutely no possible way there is a Bible anywhere near you, we are going to have verses on the screen. 
So you can follow along on the screen, but it's going to be easier if you have a Bible. So I hope you can do that. So Matthew chapter 21, but before we even start reading that, there's an interesting passage in Luke chapter 9 that I want to mention really quick. Luke chapter 9, it's verse 51. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But Luke chapter 9, verse 51, there comes a point in Jesus' life where he's been doing all this stuff. He's been giving some teachings. He's been doing some miracles. He's been healing some people. But then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Luke records, and the way Luke words it is that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. He set his face toward Jerusalem. And the reason that's significant is because there comes a point in Jesus' life where he knows that the culmination of his mission is going to happen in Jerusalem. The culmination of what he was sent to do is going to happen in one week in Jerusalem. And so there comes a point in his life where everything else becomes secondary. And he sets his face towards Jerusalem. It's his destiny. It's what he was sent for. And nothing else comes in the way of that. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the entry into Jerusalem. So Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. There's something important to mention here. As you look at this passage, it's kind of this weird, random story where Jesus is like predicting the future. He's telling the guys, hey, go ahead into this village and take this donkey. Don't even ask for it. Just take it. Well, you know what? Don't be rude. I guess if someone asks, tell them that I need it. But we got other things to worry about. So just take it. So this is what's going to happen. And sure enough, the disciples go ahead and it happens exactly the way Jesus said it would. Now, is he doing this just to show that he's powerful? Is he doing this to show that he's Miss Cleo, that he's a psychic, that he can predict what's going to happen in the future? No, it's actually a lot more than that. Because what we see here is that Jesus is in complete control of the situation. Jesus knows exactly what is happening. Jesus knows exactly what is coming. So much so that he can tell you, hey guys, this is exactly what's going to happen, and it happens that way. And the reason that's important is because as Jesus enters Jerusalem, he's not some innocent guy who's going to get ambushed unknowingly. He's a person who knows what's coming and gives up his life. His life is not taken from him. His life is given up voluntarily. It's not forced upon him. It's not unexpected. He knows what's coming. He knows there's a cross in Jerusalem with his name on it, and yet he still goes ahead. He's in the driver's seat. He knows what's going on. That's important to note. As we move on in verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, 
Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So Jesus rides into town, and he gets a king's welcome. He gets a king's welcome. The only thing that's a little bit different about his welcome, the only thing that's not a normal king's welcome, is that he doesn't ride in on some big, strong war horse. He doesn't ride in on some huge, intimidating horse that's announcing his power. Instead, he rides in on a donkey. A simple, humble, meek, unsuspecting donkey. And it fulfills what Zechariah says in uh, chapter 9, verse 9 of his prophecy, that the king is coming to him mounted on a donkey. Jesus fulfills the prophecy. And if you're the disciples, you're probably thinking, you know what, this is all going really, really, really well. Because Jesus, yeah, he's kind of said some questionable things so far, but he's getting pretty welcome. People are pretty happy that he's here. Yeah, it's a little bit unorthodox that he rode a donkey instead of a war horse. But, you know, Jesus kind of does some weird things sometimes, so that's okay. So they don't think anything of it. And there's a lot of symbolism here that's important. As he's welcomed into Jerusalem, palm branches are thrown on the ground for the donkey to walk on. And that's not just like a laying of the red carpet. There's actually more to it than that. Archaeologists have discovered that there are coins found from periods of Jewish rebellion. Whenever the Jews were trying to overthrow the nation that was in charge of them, they would make their own coins because they didn't want to even acknowledge the empire they were under. And so they would make their own coins, and you know what was on the coins? Palm branches. Palm branches were on the coins. The Jews viewed palm branches as a sign of rebellion. They viewed it as a sign of overthrowing people who were in charge of them. And sure enough, Jesus is riding into town. Rome's in control. And so people are thinking that he's going to overthrow Rome. That's why we're putting out palm branches. He's riding into town. He's a king. He's going to take Caesar's place. He's going to be in charge. But we see that Jesus has a different plan. They shout, Hosanna to the son of David. The son of David is significant because the time that Israel was at the height of its power was when David was in charge. They were rich. They were powerful. They had the biggest military. They had the most land. And so these people were thinking that Jesus is going to come in, we're going to throw down palm branches, and he's going to return us to being like we were when David was in charge. And we're going to be on top. We're going to be powerful. No more exile. No more people over us. No more people exiling us to places we don't want to go. No more people holding power over us and mocking us because we used to be powerful, but now we're not. This is a sign of rebellion for them. But this isn't exactly what Jesus has in mind. And for the sake of this sermon, as I was preparing this week, I kind of divvied this sermon out into what I call three acts, like of a play. And this is kind of what I would call the end of Act 1. And Act 1 is the entry. The entry. And everything's going great so far. But then we get into Act 2, and things are going to change a little bit. Reading verses 12 through 13. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So Jesus rides into town, gets a king's welcome, and the first thing he does is he goes to the temple. 
And that was totally common. When a king came into town, you went to the temple. You wanted to have your face seen. You wanted people to know that you're there. And so you went to the temple. But Jesus doesn't just go to the temple to be seen. He doesn't just go to the temple to make sure people know that he's arrived. He goes in and he criticizes everything the temple is doing. He tells them that they're impure. He tells them they're using the temple for the wrong thing. That this is never what the temple was meant to be used for. And so he's causing some trouble. It gets worse. As you look at Matthew chapter 21, there's a parable of the tenants in verse 33. We're not going to read the whole thing. But basically the parable is about this master who has these tenants who are overseeing this vineyard that he owns. They're overseeing this vineyard. And so the time for the fruit comes, the time for the harvest. And the master sends his servants to go check on the tenants and get the fruit. Well, the tenants have basically rebelled, and they kill the servants. They kill the servants that the master sends. So the master says, okay, well, I'm going to send more servants. So the master sends more servants. Same thing happens. The tenants kill the servants. And then the master says, you know what? I'm going to send my son. They won't kill him. Well, the tenants kill the son. And Jesus tells this parable, and in verses 45 and 46, we see this. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. They held him to be a prophet. And so Jesus has been getting on their bad side for a little while now, and they're getting tired of it. They're starting to get tired of all the insults. They're starting to get tired of all the undermining of what they're trying to do. They're done with it. And so they start thinking about ways that they can get back at Jesus. But they're pretty limited in what they can do because you can't just arrest a guy and kill a guy who gets a king's welcome. People are going to be mad. So they're sitting back and they're waiting. And they're meeting in the corridors. They're meeting at night. They're meeting in corners where no one can see them. And they're planning, and they're plotting, and they're looking for that one opportunity for Jesus to slip up, that one chance they're going to have to finally shut this guy up. It gets even worse. Jesus is not making any friends here. As you skip over to chapter 23, we see Jesus absolutely lay in to the Pharisees. In one passage, He calls them whitewashed tombs. He says they look nice on the outside, but they're dead on the inside. He calls them hypocrites multiple times. He says that they refuse to let people into the kingdom. They shut the door of the kingdom in people's faces. He calls them blind guides. He says they are a brood of vipers. He says all these terrible things. And if you're disciples at this point, you're thinking, you know what? Things were going great. But Jesus, what are you doing? If we're going to overthrow Rome, we need all the help we can get, and you're making a bunch of enemies for us that we don't need to have. You're making enemies for us that should be on our side. How are we going to overthrow Rome if you're making all these people mad? But they sit back, and they think, you know what? Jesus knew what was going to happen with the donkey. He got a king's entrance. We're going to be all right. It's going to be fine. But then Jesus goes farther. In chapter 24, verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. 
So Jesus has already criticized the temple. He's called the powerful religious leaders a bunch of names. And then he tells them, oh yeah, by the way, guys, your temple is going to be torn down. It's not going to stand anymore. And then finally, kind of the finale of Jesus' insulting comments is that he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. He says that not only is the temple going to fall, but the entire city is going to fall. And the reason this matters is because if you're an Israelite, the two things that matter most to you, the two things that show that God is on your side, is number one, your temple, because that's where God lives. And then number two, your land, because that's what God gave you. And so Jerusalem's going to fall. The jewel of the promised land, the number one part, God's city, is going to fall. The one thing that Israelites still take pride in, Jesus says, yeah, it's going to be gone. Sorry. Sorry to burst your bubble. And at this point, the disciples are thinking, okay, this is getting out of hand. This is getting really bad. Jesus is making enemies. He's making things harder on himself. And I don't know how we're going to overthrow Rome with the way he's handling things. He's kind of shooting himself in the foot. He's taking the plan and he's going, it, going totally awry with it. He has no idea what he's doing. So the disciples might be getting a little bit nervous at this point because Jesus is stirring up all this unnecessary trouble. He's making all these unnecessary enemies. That's the end of Act 2. And I call that act stirring up trouble. Act 3 starts in Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. At this point, Jesus is telling the disciples, Hey guys, I'm going to get crucified. And for the disciples, it's just in one ear and out the other. It's not the first time he's told them this, and yet they just don't get it. They choose to ignore it. Because that's not what they have planned for Jesus. That's not the way Jesus is supposed to work in their minds. They have their expectations for how a Messiah is supposed to work, and Jesus isn't meeting those expectations. But they choose to ignore it. Verse 3, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast lest there be an uproar among the people. They're done with Jesus. They are going to find a way to get rid of him. They don't know how. They have to do it in stealth. They're still meeting in those dark corridors where no one can hear them and no one can see them. But they're trying to find a way. They're ready to take action. All they need is a break. They just need a break. And they can find some way to end Jesus' life. And they get that break. And a guy named Judas, verse 14 of chapter 26. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. That's the break they needed. They needed an inside man, and Judas steps up to the plate. Because Judas hears the rumors Judas saw what happened in the temple. He knows that people are not happy with Jesus, and he knows that people are probably looking to get rid of him. And so Judas wonders to himself, how can I benefit from this? What's in this for me? How can I somehow get my piece of pie in this? And so he decides that he's going to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And so he takes the money, 
And I just imagine that every single time as he's looking for that opportunity, as he's waiting for the right moment to betray him, maybe he has doubts. Maybe he's thinking, you know what? I can't do this. I spent three years with this guy. I was under his feet while he was teaching. We ate together. We laughed together. We cried together. I saw so much. But then he hears those coins jingle in his pocket. And he thinks, you know what? It's too late. I got to do what I got to do. And so he's looking for this opportunity. And the opportunity comes in verse 47 of chapter 26. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Do what you came to do. What we see in that statement is that Jesus is still in control. Jesus knows that he's going to be betrayed. Jesus knows that this is how things are going to work. And he doesn't run from it. He doesn't flee from it. He doesn't report that Judas might be getting ready to betray him and try to get the authorities involved. He just goes along with it. Because he knows that this is what his life has been leading to. Ever since he set his face towards Jerusalem, he knew that this was coming. And he still chooses to do it. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. The disciples are thinking, you know what? Jesus has blown it. Jesus has ruined the plan. There's no way we're going to overthrow Caesar. If we're going to do this, now's the time to do it. And so they take out their swords and they're ready to fight because this is the last chance they've got. And sure enough, Jesus says, hey, put it away. Put the sword away. And not only that, he heals the ear of the guy who's going to arrest him. At that point, if you're the disciples, you're thinking, it's over. It's over. We had this plan. It was going so well. We got the entry. We got into town. Everything was going the way it was supposed to. And then all of a sudden, Jesus said all those stupid things and had to be insulting and had to be a jerk. And now he ruined it. It's over. There will be no overthrow of Rome today. But Jesus says in verse 53, Do you guys really think that I can't appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus says to these guys, you know what? If I wanted to overthrow Rome, I could. God could send me a whole army to overthrow Rome. But that's not what I came here to do. That's not my mission. That's not why I'm here. My mission is bigger than that. And I know you can't realize it. You can't recognize it because I've told you that I'm going to be crucified and you completely ignore it. But that's what my mission is. It's not about getting some nation back to power. It's not about getting our people back on top and wealthy. It's about more than that. It's not about overthrowing Rome. It's about overthrowing sin and death itself. And that doesn't happen by riding in on a war horse. It doesn't happen by pulling out a sword and cutting off a guy's ear. It happens with my blood on a cross. But they don't get it. They still don't get it. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, 
Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. It's over. Disciples gave it a shot. Jesus gave it a shot. But the plan failed. I guess he's not the Messiah after all. Because Messiahs don't get arrested. And Messiahs don't die on crosses. At least the Messiahs that they're expecting. But we see that Jesus is not the Messiah they're expecting. They think the plan is over. They think it's all gone in the trash can. They think that everything is done with. And at this point, they're just trying to get away so, they, so that they don't get arrested for conspiring with Jesus. So they flee. No overthrow today. Maybe a new Messiah will come. But it's clearly not Jesus. For them, they think the story is over. And honestly, if the story ended there, it wouldn't really be a story worth telling. But the thing is, is that the story doesn't end there. The story doesn't end with a failed plot to overthrow a powerful nation. The story doesn't end with an arrest. The story doesn't even end with a cross. In fact, the story technically hasn't even ended yet. Because we still wait for Christ to return. The cross is done with. The resurrection is It's been completed, but the story is still being written. And the reason it's a story worth telling is because the story doesn't end there. And the beauty of the story is that it's a story that you and I are invited to be a part of. It's a story that is still being written, and God wants our input. God wants us to be involved because he invites us to be his followers. Because Rome wasn't overthrown, that wouldn't have an eternal impact. That might be an important moment of history, but it wouldn't have an eternal impact. What Jesus does affects eternity for all of eternity. It's the most important week in history. Because it is farther than history. It's bigger than history. It's about eternity. And God calls us to be a part of that plan. God offers us a role in the story. God offers us a role in the play. And we just have to accept it. And next week, we're going to be looking at the rest of this week. We're going to be looking at Good Friday, the day that Jesus was crucified. We're going to be looking at Easter, the day that we believe Christ rose bodily from the grave. And that's a story worth telling. That's a story worth telling, and it's a story that you and I are invited to be a part of. And ultimately, if everything else was gone, if the building was gone, and the chairs were gone, and the microphones were gone, and the guitars were gone, and the curriculum was gone, this is what we'd have. We'd have a story. But the good news is that this story is powerful enough to accomplish anything that these chairs can't accomplish, or guitars can't accomplish, or microphones can't accomplish, or buildings can't accomplish. It's the story that we have. It's the story of Christ. And it's your story, and it's my story. Because we get to be a part of it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the story of Christ. And thank you for everything that this coming week signifies. And God, I pray that as we celebrate the different days of this week, as we 
reflect on what this week entails, this week of Jerusalem. God, I pray that it will affect our lives. I pray that it will challenge us in the deepest portions of our heart. I pray that we'll learn to love you, to love our neighbor, and to trust in this story, because this story can change lives. The same way the Samaritan man was changed when he was helped, we can be changed by this story. And I pray that it's a story that we know is worth sharing, and it's a story that we are taking out into our community. Thank you for your son. Thank you for his life, and thank you for his death, and most of all, thank you for his resurrection. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.